to Sugar Coated. I'm your host, Adrian Garland, the CEO and founder of She Leads Media. For far too long, women have been conditioned to sugarcoat their words, their actions, and the way they show up in the world, and to conform to certain cultural norms and ideals. This is inherently designed to keep those who are outside of the norm from gaining power, prestige, wealth, and influence, preventing more women from being recognized and respected as the powerful leaders that we truly are. Join me each week as we dive into raw conversations with remarkable, uncompromising, and inspirational women that will encourage you to strip away your sugar coating and move boldly in the direction of your magnificent dreams. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Sugar Coated. I am your host, Adrienne Garland, and I am so excited because I have somebody very special here with me today that we are going to talk about everything as it relates to finance for women, women entrepreneurs, and uh, just everything about Dallas. <laughs> welcome, Kelly Ann Wingett, to Sugar Coated. I am so happy that you're here today. Thank you for having me. I love having these conversations, especially when it can be a little unfiltered. Oh, yeah. This is sugar-coated, which is, you know, the conversations that we have are specifically designed to not be sugar-coated because just as women, and I'm sure that you have experienced this, everything that we do sort of has to have that, you know, saccharine sugar coating on it in order for it to be palatable to people. And I am done with it. So I, I, I think that you are too. So I would love for you to just kind of tell everybody, you know, who you are and what, what your mission is really in, in the world. Sure. So I'm the founder and fund manager for Alternative Wealth Partners. It's a Dallas-based private equity company. And I've had a little over a decade of experience in the private space, um, exclusively in alternative investments. So alternative investments being everything outside of stocks, bonds, and cash, primarily in oil and gas and kind of emerging markets. But through my career, I helped raise almost a billion dollars in private capital, $100,000 at a time. So in the middle of the pandemic, I was working for a large private equity company as their oil and gas kind of expert to talk to investors about the risk and rewards of oil and gas. We agreed to disagree on what those risks and rewards were. And I took that as my sign to just go out on my own. Mm. I believe in a lot of transparency is owed to investors and large firms don't. So I took that opportunity to start Alternative Wealth Partners in the middle of 2020 and launch a couple different funds. We manage almost $20 million today and uh, getting ready to launch some pretty big things here in the near future. Wow. I mean, that is no small feat to, number one, venture out on your own in the middle of the pandemic mm -hmm. and then venture into private equity because that is typically not a space where we see a lot of women, especially women fund managers, people who are raising that kind of capital. Mm -hmm. So I guess two questions, like, did you, was this just opportunistic? Like, I have gotten this far on my own, done great things. I know I can do this. Or was this like, I always wanted to have my own company. And so here's my opportunity. So it was kind of twofold. I have been an entrepreneur for a very long time. I both my parents were very entrepreneurial. So I've owned, my first company was actually selling golf balls back to the golfers that 
hit their golf balls into our yard as a kid. <gasps> I love it. <laughs> uh, you know, at six years old, I was uh, uh, selling golf balls back to men for a dollar and um, <laughs> and then insulting their golf game. But <laughs> I, I worked as a consultant for, um, you know, almost 10 years before actually creating my own fund and, and firm. I was helping companies with that messaging to investors of how to raise the capital and, and what kind of marketing that they need and what kind of messaging, because I grew up in an affluent family. So that communication with high net worth individuals came very easy to me. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people who are raising capital don't necessarily come from those backgrounds. That's why they're asking for money. Mm. And so the communication style with trying to connect with people that can write you a check it takes a lot of work. So that's mm -hmm. what I was doing for a majority of my career. And then the last couple of years, it was more on investor education, which was how do you find these opportunities off Wall Street? What is the due diligence process looks like? What do you need to be looking for in a manager? What are the different opportunities offer to investors? And that's kind of where I realized, you know, I should just be doing this yeah. for them instead of just like educating people. And I never really wanted to be licensed anyways, because I didn't want to advise people on their portfolio. I am very good at alternatives and I'm very good at creating deals and negotiating mm -hmm. and working with asset managers and the investor relations part. So, well, I think that everybody needs to have complete control of their finances. You know, alternatives is a relatively small part of people's portfolios. And that's what I like to work in. Mm. So this is so interesting. First of all, I think just the recognition that, you know, these things are sometimes superpowers. So the recognition that you knew the language to to use in order to communicate with some of these, you know, higher net worth individuals, you know, I, I think that that's, and giving credit to the fact that you grew up in that environment, I, I think is, you know, it's really important to recognize that. And it's not that other, you know, people can't learn how to do it, but it's sort of like you had an advantage there, which I, I love. I think that's great. When we have advantages, we should lean into them and not shy away from them. So I really admire yes. you for, for doing that. And then the other thing is, you know, just kind of, slowing down, breaking this down. So a, a lot of the, the women in our audience are entrepreneurs. And just being around women entrepreneurs for, you know, a long time now and being one myself, I know that there is so much, you know, I don't know if it's like fear, but just around finance in general. I don't have that fear because I actually come out of the financial industry. So I have a, a comfort level, but I recognized that I am not like a, a lot of other women entrepreneurs. I actually went through this incredible program um, called the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program. Yeah. And there were people, I was in a cohort of, of only women. There were people in my uh, class that when we got to the finance section, they just broke down crying. And then there were a lot of stories of how they got taken advantage by some of these predatory lenders and things like that. So finance as a topic, just forget about investments, but mm -hmm. finance as a topic is something that is triggering and it's something that a lot of women shy away from. They want someone else to do it. What kind of, because you're so comfortable in this world. So, you know, to you, it's like, well, you know, this is my every day. But what type of, and I know you don't do this, but what type of advice would you give to women who are nervous about diving into finance and their business and then also any type of an investment? 
Right. So recognizing the privilege, both my parents were in financial services, uh, CPAs, accountants. My mom was part of the financial decision-making teams of multiple companies, um, whether it was her own or somebody else's. But so we were talking about money all the time. And we still talk about money all the time, pretty openly. And that's a conversation that not a lot of people have at, around the dinner table. You know, I'm 16 doing my own taxes and uh, <laughs> most people aren't that way, but I've actually wrote a book last year and it's getting ready to launch. And oh, I wow. talk about exactly why women have this mindset um, around money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is that it's built into all of the pop culture media so the messaging is, is that women aren't good with money. Women shouldn't be making financial decisions. Like there's all of this messaging that's like just woven into every day, everything that you're looking at subconsciously, it's in between the lines, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that women have been making the financial decisions for the household since the beginning of time. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> so one of these, these experiences, now the phrase, like from the, from the movie, The Boiler Room, there's this mm-hmm. phrase that's said in in these uh in these boiler rooms these bullpens that is don't pitch the bitch right Mm. which is if you get a female on the phone you just don't talk to them they ruin the deal they call you and bother you all the time like you just don't just do not sell them the stock don't don't give don't engage yeah don't engage and this was said to me in real life very early in my career and uh, i thought it was a joke and it wasn't they i mean this was a real thing that was said and and then pushed through the sales world. But my experience is that working on these different types of private placements is that you would spend all this time talking to, you know, the husband about this investment opportunity. And when it came down to actually funding the investment, they had to bring their wife into the conversation to find out what bank account, where the checkbook was, you know, like all of these different things. And I don't know if it was a tactic for them to either back out, but the reality is, is that then the, then the wife is upset because you've spent all this time talking to their husband about something. They have no idea. They have no information. They're expected to make a decision right there about whether or not the check is going to be written without being able to actually look at anything. Yeah. And um, so when I went out on my own, I was like, you know what? I don't like that at all. If, if I'm going to bring in a couple into an investment opportunity, both people are going to be at the table the entire time. Yeah. And what I found from that experience is that women usually write bigger checks than their husband. Mm. And so, um, and this probably has a lot to do with the fact that I am also a woman, but, you know, I think that it's important for your audience to know that they do know more than they think they do. Mm-hmm. And to not second guess themselves all the time, like have confidence Women are really good with money. We just are inherently so. We pay more attention to smaller details. We take the time to like process information. There's a lot of research based on, you know, women decision makers and investing in men making investment decisions. And we're good at it. And you need to accept that and have the confidence. It's okay. Money is not scary. No. I do make a joke, you know, that money's made up. It's literally just made up. So once you've accepted that, it's a little bit easier to start the process of learning about what and how to manage money when you kind of like take all the seriousness and heaviness off by just kind of laughing at it a little bit. It's literally made up. Yeah, and it's true. It's it's sort of just numbers, right? right? And there's so much behind it when you start 
attributing value to it and and that when women don't get paid as much, when they don't get access to capital, then it means that mm-hmm. they're not valuable, right? They're not as valuable as the people that are making the more money and everything. And then when you have the more money, you're able to have these conversations about all these different types of investments. Mm-hmm. So I love that. And I also heard the other day, you know, money is just energy, right? It's just an exchange. And so once you sort of understand that it's just an exchange, then you can kind of remove the the feeling and the emotion behind it and kind of like get to the business of, of doing, right. you know, the, the transaction. One of the things that I'm very curious about too is, you know, again, when you start talking about alternative investments, is there a certain income that someone needs to make? Do they have to have a certain amount of money, you know, in the bank or in in assets? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, when it comes to alternative assets, it really depends on what asset it is, has different thresholds. So when it comes to like precious metals, when it comes to real estate, when it comes to um, like even life insurance products, Mm. cryptocurrency, there's no barrier to entry, right? Anyone can go out and buy a piece of property. Anybody can buy a cryptocurrency. Anybody can go buy a bar of gold. You know, these types of things is based on the price, right? If you don't have enough to buy a piece of gold, you can't buy gold. But there's no entity keeping you from participating in those asset classes. Hmm. Now, when it comes into private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, these types of alternative assets, there is a barrier to entry. And that ranges from being an accredited investor, which is a million dollar plus liquid net worth. This is your net worth outside of your primary residence, or you make over $200,000 a year. I think that the SEC in 2020 decided that you could also take your Series 65 and become accredited investor. So if mm. you're a test taker, you could just go do that. Mm. Uh, which is kind of fun. And the only reason why they did that was kind of a lazy way for them to like broaden who could invest in alternatives. And it was just because there were a bunch of financial advisors out there who weren't accredited. Themselves. Yeah, themselves. Okay. You have to take, like, remember that your Edward, your neighborhood Edward Jones advisor probably makes $60,000 a year. Okay. So if you have a million dollars, think about who's managing that money. Yeah. If they've never seen a million dollars in their life, they probably shouldn't be managing your million dollars. Yeah. Like that's kind of your barrier to entry. Now, once you get into hedge funds and some larger private equity stuff, you have to become a qualified investor. And that's a much higher barrier. That's a, a $5 million hurdle or you're an institutional investor. Now, that's going to be your billion dollar funds, like endowment stuff. Mm. And, and those are typically people who are custodians and managing billions of dollars on their behalf. So your endowment would be a qualified investor, but their pool of money comes from, you know, teachers and firemen. Sure. Th- this is so interesting. I, I really like the idea that anybody can be an investor. And, you know, for, for me, you know, anybody can go out and buy a bar of gold. You, you literally can, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that women adopt that identity easily. 
you know, I'm an investor. I do see it happening more and more. I actually had somebody on the show the other day where she invests in real estate. It's just so fascinating once you start listening to people because, you know, initially she was doing the investing herself. Um, and then she's also a meteorologist, you know, okay. on the side, <laughs> um, full time, actually. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have time to do as much of the research as she would like to have done. So she was able to find, you know, like a group of people that are investing in real estate that do it full time. And then she participates in that way. So I, I just love this concept of, you know, you don't need to be this institutional qualified or even accredited investor in order to be an investor. Right. If you kind of change that mindset, right. And think about each thing that you're buying as an investment. Yeah. It's kind of a cool thing. Like I just made an investment when you buy, you know, new shoes, you've invested in your well-being of walking around in the world. Right. And just think like when you swipe the card to make that purchase, be like, what a great investment, you know, and just start thinking about that. And it'll, it'll help you realize that everything that you do is an investment, whether it's an investment in you, your mental health, your physical health, your bank account, you know, whatever, mm. you know, at the end of the day, it's all investments. Um, That's so good. You know, the, I thank you for saying that, because I, I think that that is something too, as women entrepreneurs, that we see a lot of money sort of going out that, you know, we have to pay for this, we have to pay for that. And to to truly like turn it around and think this is an investment. It might not pay off right here, right now, but it's going to pay off in the future. Whatever that is, whether that's in education, whether that is, you know, like I I actually did my own mind shift, mindset shift back in November. I, I hosted my conference. We had done it in person all the way up until, you know, 2020. I don't even remember the years. And then we went, you know, online. And then I, I did not do it for one year. And so I kind of came back in November live mm-hmm. in person. And it's, you know, there's still a lot of challenges for, for live events. And so I didn't quite cover all of the costs. And I, I just kept telling myself that this is an investment that I made back into the conference again to mm-hmm. now hopefully, you know, this year coming up and, and years after that more people will come, more sponsorships, all of that. Because otherwise, if I sort of didn't see it like that, I don't know that I would have continued on. Right. And I think it's important. Yeah, it is. And if you're an instant gratification type person, in that moment, you could say, I got to have my conference because of this, right? It's yeah. not, I'm doing this because in the future it'll pay off. It's, I, I invested in this so this could exist, right? Yeah. And it did exist. And everybody that participated was able to do that, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and they had a great time. Yeah, <laughs> I know that for good. sure. <laughs> <laughs> good. So also just switching gears a, a little bit too. So I, I love that you are helping people identify these alternative and investments. And it's it, just to step into that for one second, when I start hearing you talk about like what an alternative investment is, and then you say oil and gas, you know, to me, that doesn't feel like it's alternative, right? So, you know, when I think of alternative, I think, you know, maybe investing in company, right? Like an angel investor. Can you just just take a moment to break all of that down to like, 
this investment that we're talking about, angel investment, venture capital, et cetera? Sure. So going back to, it's all about the marketing and the messaging that's been around since the beginning of time and this little bubble that's been created around the ultra wealthy, right? And the generational wealth that's been made in traditional asset classes like oil and gas and real estate, uh, manufacturing, infrastructure, that sort of thing. The messaging around an alternative investment to make it sound, ooh, you know? <laughs> and scary. <laughs> yeah, it's scary and unattainable, right? Is is really, it's done on purpose. It has not, it literally just means if it's not a stock bond or cash, like yeah. if it's not a publicly traded thing, uh, yeah, it yeah. falls into the alternatives category. And there's mm-hmm. even alternatives, you know, you can invest in alternative type stocks, right? There's like a category of that. But it's really just to confuse people because when we're talking about oil and gas, it is an alternative because even though you can buy an alternative, I mean, buy a stock of an oil and gas company, right? Investing in the alternative space of, alter- of oil and gas means you're investing in the actual physical real estate and property of oil and gas, mm. um, whether you're owning the rights to the resources in the ground or you're actually drilling the wells or you're building the pipelines you know, or your oil services company where you provide like storage units, you know, there's all different types of way that you can invest in the industry that isn't publicly traded. Mm -hmm. And that space is exclusive to accredited investors, right? Um, And that's okay, because there's a lot of risk and people who are investing in that can handle a $100,000 million loss. (laughs) And and eventually everybody gets there, they get to have that opportunity. At some point, once they've built their businesses or sold their businesses or, you know, you've done well in the stock market and stuff. But it's just a way to create mystery around an asset class that everybody should know about. Mm-hmm. And private equity is very different than venture capital. Private equity is investing in those businesses. Typically, they've been around already. They're revenue generating. They're either positive or not profitable or not making money. And venture capital is going to be more of your startup space. So pre-revenue mm-hmm but they all fall underneath the category of private equity, right? Sure, so sure. it's just uh, venture capital is a version of private equity. Uh, and those things are, again, has a barrier of entry of being accredited or qualified investor. There's different ways that you can get involved in those spaces through um, different legal uh, structures, like a, a special purpose vehicle, an SPV, where you have a sponsor who's put together um, smaller check amounts in order to reach the minimum check amount in order to invest in those companies. Mm-hmm. So you might have a group of people that each contribute $10,000 to an SPV, and that SPV then contributes $100,000 into a company or a startup. Mm, I love that. Th- this is so good. And and just even this bit of education that you're giving us, I mean, if if you are motivated to learn and to understand this, this information about what these different investment classes and types are, this is available on the internet. Yeah, I mean, it's free. All these, like, one of my biggest pet peeves, and because we're here, we're unsugarcoated, right? So um, one of my biggest <laughs> pet me. peeves, yeah, are, are, are the financial, now I guess there's a, an, a way to become a financial coach instead of an advisor or anything. I think it's like a, a course you can take to teach financial literacy. And uh, I learned this because there's a bunch of new financial coaches on TikTok, right? And they're teaching, you know, they're able to charge to teach somebody like what a budget is, right? You know, this is this is dangerous because, again, you have people who were, you know, my favorite example is that your neighborhood uh, 
Edward Jones' advisor was a used car salesman about six months ago. So same type of thing. These people have no financial education outside of this financial literacy course that they got a certificate for. And now they're on the internet, like spewing information and then charging you for it when Mm. you can learn this information for free. One of my favorite sites to go to for like when people are trying to understand basic financial terms, Mm -hmm. it's just investopedia.com. Like they, it just really briefly explains all different types of investment terms, concepts, you know, products. It just defines them. And then of course there's ads and stuff on the side for fidelity or whatever, but the information is unaffiliated. The other part of this, you can actually go to any of the government websites affiliated with the the market mm-hmm. and they have tools and resources for investors to learn about what to do and not to do when it comes to investing mm-hmm. and what the risks are in each one of those asset classes. So oh, this is good. This is yeah, great information. It's all free. It's so, all free. Yeah. The, the only person that's standing in the way of you and knowing this is yourself. So, yeah. you know, take the initiative and, and Google around and just understand that if something is highlighted in blue, it's an affiliate link. Yes. So take that information <laughs> with a grain of grain salt because um, yep. they're trying to sell you something. But, you know, for the most part, that information on those two websites are are pretty useful. If you're trying to learn the basics of, you know, what these things are or yeah. if somebody says something that you may or may not know, like not everybody knows like what a Roth IRA is. Right. So just understanding the basics of what a Roth IRA is will help you then understand whether somebody's trying to sell you a product into that or not. Yeah. And this is so important. And we're going to include those links in the show notes. But I think the the message here that I would like to convey, and I always say this even to the students that I teach, uh, especially at the undergrad level at NYU, is know your numbers, like get to know this stuff. Do not be afraid. And if there's anything that anybody says that you don't understand what that means, Go and find out, like educate yourself. And in our class at NYU, what I do is we build a profit and loss statement from, you know, from an idea. And I say, just use your minds. Like, let's think about this. Like, this Mm -hmm. is logical. These are numbers. This is addition and subtraction. And maybe there's some multiplication in there. (laughs) But it's really not that, it's not that difficult. And one of the things that I, absolutely love is I I do, I ask people to reflect at the end just about a lot of different things. I feel personally that's the best way for people to to learn is to kind of reflect it back to you. But so many of them say, you know, I didn't understand this. I was so scared of this. And now, like, I feel like I can do this. You know, this makes sense to me. And I don't know why we're sort of not taught that stuff. You know, I don't know what the, they're teaching the kids now, but <laughs> I'm surprised that they don't teach these fundamental things. And even about investments, right? Like if we were taught when we were in middle school and high school, something beyond like how to write the check, that was back in right. my day, how to write the check now. Mm-hmm. But like if we were taught, this is what an investment is. For every dollar that you make, you shouldn't be spending it. You can actually like make your money, make money. Mm-hmm. We would be in such a different place now. Why don't they teach it? <laughs> I, don't, I think it's a, it's, 
It's probably because one, it's not been done, right? And so people that are building the curriculum are one, not women, but two, um, are people that also have never kind of owned businesses. True. And and I can speak firsthand to this because like my fiance, we have a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old, almost 10 and 13, okay? And I manage millions of dollars, okay? (laughs) It is my whole job to do all of these things. And I cannot teach these two children how not to spend their allowance, the money, like the allowance money, the way that they do. And, you know, you're sitting there in Target, like pulling your hair out because they're like, (sighs) you just earned this $10. And now you're asked to borrow two more dollars so you can buy the stuffed animal. And how do I explain going into debt? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) right there. (laughs) You you owe me. But it doesn't doesn't stick. You know, you're you're explaining to them like, okay, you're if you're going to borrow the $2, like you're not going to have money for next week. And they're like, I don't care. You know, yeah, they don't care <laughs> and, uh, because it's not, it's not, the, it's not realistically their money. Right. It's, yeah. And there's no, there's no consequence to it in real life as adults, there's consequences to not managing your money. Well, yeah. I think that there's not really like a good way to have like, consequences with money with children when you're still trying to work on consequences related to behavior. Yeah. So I think that that's like, if we're going to go in this huge, big tangent of this thing, but I think that's probably the biggest struggles because there's not, there's not a tangible like consequence of not managing your money well, because they just don't have allowance. And what does that really do for them? Yeah, it's almost like they need to feel the pain. It's when, yeah. you know, I'm I'm sure that this type of, you know, curriculum would be much better or would sink in in a much better way with high school kids who have jobs, who have cars that they have to put gas in and, and all mm-hmm. of that. And then even just early college years, you know, you don't have to be a finance major in order to learn this stuff. This is stuff that everybody really should be learning about. And I know that there's a lot of great companies out there that do financial education for women, which is absolutely terrific. But you still see no matter what, no matter what is out there, there's still like this innate fear around it. So I hope that you know, the millions of people that are listening into Sugar Coated <laughs> right now, that, that that's the message. Like, educate yourself so that you understand so that, you know, when when you do have the opportunity to potentially invest in something that it doesn't scare you and that you don't, you participate, you don't not participate because you're afraid. You make a decision that you don't want to participate because you're informed. Yes. Yeah. You have to... Um... Now there's stepping stones, right? You have to get to a place where your bills are paid, right? And there is some breathing room there. Then you can start investing, right? Because you're, the reality is, is it doesn't matter how good the investment is. I don't care how many insurance people tell you that your your investment is guaranteed. It's yeah. not. So, yeah. you know, you have to invest like you could potentially lose every dime of that um, yeah. at some point in your life. So splitting that extra money beyond your bills, you know, starts with creating that cushion and then being able to take risks, whether that's starting your own company, changing jobs, investing in maybe more education to get a different job at the same job. There's all these things that can happen, but they're stepping stones. And I think that that's probably the biggest gap between the financial literacy tools 
offered today and like what we will eventually get to because yeah. there's the financial literacy tools today are built for people who have money, right? And the people yes. that stay in a fight or flight mode are people who can't get past that barrier. They grew up in a in a financially tight situation and they just saw their parents, the people that they are learning these uh, skills from struggle with that. So when they go into a space with money, they're also struggling with that. And they're mm-hmm. using the same coping skills and and uh, money management strategies as their parents. And that doesn't necessarily get them out of their situation. Yeah. Um, and it isn't until there's, you know, a savior of somebody with more money come in and tell them what they're supposed to be doing. But again, that doesn't take them from the situation they're in into a new situation. It's very hard for people who are building the financial literacy tools to understand that they don't have the money to start putting away yeah. to get a new job. Like they have to make it work in their situation. And how do yeah. they do that? And the people building those budgets just have never experienced that. No, yeah. And that is, that's a huge gap. And so just recognizing that that is a very real problem that is worth solving. You know, I hope that there are people that can come along that are smarter than me and that they can create those types of solutions because this is like big. Like what what you just talked about is big. It keeps the poor, poor. It makes the rich, richer. And it creates this awful dividing line between all of us. And that just leads to so much strife and anger in the world. And if we could smooth that out somehow, and I don't know if it's ever going to be possible because like you said, like this stuff has been going on, you know, since the beginning of time, right? The more that we can kind of get people out of the situation or at least give them the information that they need to make the decisions so that they can do that. I I do think you know, in a Pollyanna way, I do think that the the world can be a better place. And yeah. I do think that it's going to be women who help to solve that and to heal that. So hopefully, again, someone listening in <laughs> will we'll take that as a call to action. It's, and uh, it's, go my on. Belief, it's my belief that um, rich white women will save the world. And it's because... <laughs> <laughs> It's because female investors are impact investors. Yes, yes, we like our upside, but at the same time, we give a lot of our money back into the community, right? Yes. And so even though I only work with accredited and up investors, like I work with the top, you know, wealthy people in the country, there's kind of like a Robin Hood effect happening. So I'm I'm targeting women and minorities who have money, right? Because the women and minorities are going to be able to take those returns and re- invested in their community, right? Yeah. So where a black woman needs to have money, you know, so in their community. But if I can make that black woman a lot of money, she'll yeah. know what to do with it. She know, will know exactly <laughs> what to do with it. Yep. And that's how, you know, this is how I think they maybe have thought trickle-down economics would work, uh, yeah. except you have to <laughs> change where the money is going. <laughs> yeah, not back into the pockets of that, yeah. Right. So I think that um, as as investors, it's really important for us to be conscious of where we're writing our checks Mm. because it makes a difference. Like if you're funding a founder who is, you know, diverse, then you're creating an opportunity for them and their lineage of community. Right. Yeah. 
So that founder created a product that makes sense for their community, their their audience. And then from there, they're able to then reinvest in their community. Maybe there's another founder in that community that could benefit from now their, their check writing network. And that's how that works. Because right now, I mean, even in Silicon Valley, you just have you know, a, a 25 to 35 year old white guy with a beard and circle glasses, you know, getting yeah. another $350 million check. Yeah. And um, that doesn't, that doesn't change the status quo for anybody. So no. us as women need to not just invest in the same thing everybody else is like, we need to support each other. And I think that that's, you know, step one, we're, we're just more impactful investors. And I think that that's where we're going to see that change. I love that. And I, and I love that perspective. And I love that knowledge that, you know, women and, you know, I, I don't I don't know as much about minority investing, but I do know for sure I've, I've done a lot of research on when, you know, when women sort of get wealth, they they put it back into their communities and, and humanity ultimately is better because mm-hmm. of it. So just really quick, so I, I know that you also you also have a company that you started. Can you talk a little bit about that company? Because that's in the sustainability realm. Sure. So um, now I own a couple different companies, and they all do. But the one that you're talking about is Fashion Full Circle. And if you ever see me at a conference or an event, or some, sometimes on some podcast, I, I'm wearing them. But I have custom suits, and my suits are like mostly brightly colored, but the liners inside them are all kind of crazy and custom. Mm. And uh, they, my suit person is named Sterling. And she has Sterling suits and she's based in Houston. Mm. The first time that I met her, um, I had seen one of her, she's very good on social media. <laughs> I saw her on LinkedIn and I was like, I have to have that suit. So I met her in Houston. I was in town for uh, seeing one of my portfolio companies. I was like, you need to meet me at this client's office, blah, 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 blah. So she comes there to do the initial meeting where you like get measured and all sorts of stuff. And it ended up being like a two hour meeting because I'm like talking to her about her goals. Like, what is she doing? Because she's at this point, I think she was 26. Wow. And uh, I was like, I think that you have the potential to take this like way beyond what you think you can take it. And there's an opportunity here because our client base is very similar that we can tap into these powerhouse women that are executive, you know, C-level women or entrepreneurs, business owners, CEOs, things like that, and have a chance for us to get together and enjoy each other's company, our network, share somebody we know that they might make see useful, but also give back to the community. Because you have a lot of nonprofits that throw galas and events and stuff where like 99% of the money raised for the day went to paying for the event. Yeah. And we wanted to create an experience that was high value for those that were attending for no other reason except for to be around each other and to to give back. So Mm -hmm. what we've done is created these curated events. It's usually 40, maybe 60 people in our client base. And uh, we get an opportunity to like hang out with each other. We did a tea time at an Indian, a very popular Indian restaurant down in Houston. So we got to experience, here's this you know, privately owned, woman owned uh, Indian restaurant. So we get to go support the business. So cool. We get to uh, network with each other. And then we supported the nonprofit that the owner really likes to support personally. Yep. So we all just donated directly to the nonprofit, you know, and got to enjoy each other's time. So we get, we create a stage for, you know, maybe an under recognized nonprofit that is doing a lot of really good work that somebody in our network supports. So we're not That's just. Awesome. Support- we're not just supporting some nationally 
recognized nonprofit. You know, this isn't like Barch of Dimes is coming in and like doing a presentation or raising, you know, $20,000 for March of Dimes. Yeah. You know, we're raising $20,000 for a woman's shelter in the city that we live in, right? Yeah. Who, Who can put that directly to use. And we know that all of that money, because they're not putting together the event, is going it goes right to them. Yeah. It goes right to the cause. And we wow. do that because we don't we don't need to create the nonprofit, right? The nonprofits are out there. There's people who know what they're doing and know how to help the right people. But we are successful individually on our own. We're going to be donating this money anyways. We might as well also get the opportunity to network with each other mm. and make the donation, right? Yeah. And it's fashion full circle and sterling suits. We also collect professional wear for Dress for Success, oh. Houston and Dallas. Now that's a nas- nationally recognized nonprofit. You know, we believe that when you look good, you feel good and you can do more. And while most of us are spending money on custom clothing, we have a professional wardrobe that can be passed on to somebody who may or may not be able to ever afford that. Mm. So that's what we get to do. And it's fun because it's very low key. Like there's not a lot of pressure. You just donate or you don't. Mm. And, um, you know, most people are donating. And uh, Sterling and I contribute the most typically to the nonprofits that we partner with. Mm. But it, it exposes a a group of, of people who are doing good in their community to people that could really help elevate that work. I love it. It's so funny. The the way that you're describing it is almost exactly the way that you just described when you invest in, you know, a, a woman or a minority-owned business, and then they take that money because they know what to do with it. It's the same exact concept that right. you just described with, well, I'm, I'm tripping over the name. I want to call it full frontal. Fashion <laughs> full circle. <laughs> yeah. Fashion. Yeah. Full, full front, fashion full frontal. That's a TV show or something. Um, yeah. Fashion full circle. So I just, I love that. And Kelly, I just, I loved speaking with you today. I feel like there's so much more that I want to learn from you. And I can't wait to just continue following you and seeing all the great work that you're doing. And I hope that people that are listening in today get inspired, uh, you know, to not be afraid of finance, to do things that are going to help build other people up that, you know, can help communities and that we, as women entrepreneurs, that we really work hard to earn profit so that we can take that profit and then invest it in some of these other vehicles so that we can help the world. So thank you so much. It was so awesome speaking with you. I am so inspired by you. And uh, maybe we'll get to see each other one day because my son goes to to college in Dallas. Yes, I really look forward to that because, um, you know, this has been a really... This has been a really nice conversation. Oh, well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. And I know that everybody uh, listening in to Sugar Coated appreciates it as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. The She Leads Podcast Network.